invite you to open your Bible with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. While you're doing that, I just want to uh, just thank the trustees uh, for their work in keeping track of things. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's necessary work. And just to encourage you as a congregation as well, every year our total giving increases. And uh, so there's a lot of different things, benevolent fund and mission funds and uh, things that we support and uh, we praise the Lord for that. As I just want to reiterate, uh, if you could think specifically about supporting the general fund, um, it seems sort of ordinary and uh, mundane, but um, it's really the bread and butter of who we are as a church and what we do uh, as we carry out gospel ministry and looking forward to continually expand that ministry. And so just prayerfully encourage you to think about um, your relationship with the general fund and, and the Lord is blessing us and uh, hopefully we can see that come back quickly. Uh, let's give our attention now to God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm just going to read a few verses. We'll look at some other scriptures as we go through the message, and so I encourage you to keep your Bible open. You'll notice that we're not in the uh, Hebrews series this morning. I'll be picking that up this evening, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. But this morning, I thought it'd be appropriate for us to um, have a preparatory uh, message. Uh, when I was a uh, Growing up in the church, in the Christian Farm Church, um, it was uh, common for us the Sunday before the Lord's Supper that there would be a preparatory message and uh, where, the, where the pastor would specifically talk about uh, the communion and preach on some aspect of it and call the church to a proper biblical understanding and participation in it. And so I thought it'd be uh, good for us to practice that this morning. And so this is a preparatory message for our uh, celebration of the Lord's Supper this evening. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul is writing uh, about the idolatry that the people are being tempted to participate in, uh, in the, uh, the, the temple idolatry that existed in the world of that day, uh, particularly in Corinth, a city known for its sexual immorality that would have been uh, related to a temple worship. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 14, where Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to, as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Oh God in heaven, thank you for this living, inspired word of God that is given for our instruction to teach us, uh, to admonish us, uh, to train us in righteousness, uh, to show us the wonder of Jesus. I pray, God, that your spirit would aid us in all of that to our benefit and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> As I said, this evening we're going to be celebrating the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And one of the unfortunate uh, realities of uh, being a modern American 21st century Christians is that uh, we have lost uh, much of a, a sense of the significance 
the weight, the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Um, it has been reduced in our uh, general evangelical culture. The Lord's Supper has been reduced to a reminder of something that happened a long time ago that is in some mysterious way uh, supposed to be an encouragement to you in your Christian faith. But it's very much a private thing, a personal thing in that sense. Uh, my, Joanne and I were at a, a worship service this past summer and uh, where at the end of the sermon, uh, the, the pastor just invited, if anyone felt inclined, uh, he would be in the corner handing out bread and wine. And uh, if you would like to, to have some, you could make your way over there. And so at the end of the service, that's what happened. A few people, uh, and, and it was individually, completely individually, there was, there was no community whatsoever, and he would hand out a piece of bread and wine and then, and then, and then uh, and pray with them. Now, that, I'm sure that was meaningful to the people who were, who were there. Um, but I think we need to hear Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. When you get together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're celebrating. Uh, we don't have a grasp of the weight and the significance uh, of the Lord's Supper. In fact, let me just ask you, what if we just stopped having the Lord's Supper altogether? What difference would that actually make in your Christian life? If we just didn't do it anymore, you know, it makes the services go long. We got a lot of kids in the nursery, and um, we would have some some people would be really happy if we just if we uh, you know got done on time. And what what impact would that actually have in your Christian life? Could you live happily as a Christian, not celebrating the Lord's Supper anymore? And I think if if we think about it, we. We probably wonder, well, that, that might be possible. I've got my Bible study. I've got, uh, I, you know, I got worship. I got Christian friends. Our Christian practice and piety isn't centered on a, a, a communion meal. And I say that uh, to note that uh, that is in marked contrast to the uh, life of the early church, where breaking bread was a prominent part of their life as Christians, their identity as Christians. A breaking bread doesn't always mean communion in the New Testament, but it often does. Two instances where it certainly does, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Uh, they devoted themselves to all of these things. These were all a significant part. So to say, could you do your Christian life without the breaking of bread would be the same as to ask, could you do your Christian life without prayer? Would your Christian life function well with, if you just never prayed or you never, um, you never opened your Bible? Could you do your Christian life without any fellowship with other believers? In the same way, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. In Acts 20, verse 7, we read, On the first day of the week, Sunday, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. Uh, the, the interesting part about this text is the, the way that Luke records this. Is that he's, he's saying that we gather together in order to break bread. The, the infinitive mood of the Greek verb signifies purpose. In other words, the, celebrating the Lord's Supper was the purpose of the gathering. And Paul um, gave a message then to, to them uh, to uh, prepare them for the breaking of bread, but they gathered to break bread. Now, why did the table have such significance? And the answer from 1 Corinthians 10 is that uh, 
the Lord's Supper is a participation in the sacrifice of Christ that forms us as a body of Christ. Is the cup, of bless- the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And so this morning what we're going to look at is a problem that Paul is addressing, and then we're going to um, notice, secondly, uh, this idea of participation and what it means, and then finally, the practice of this. Uh, you have, I believe, an outline that was handed out. Hopefully, that's helpful. Uh, let's just jump in at 1 Corinthians 10 here. Notice there's a problem that Paul is addressing. He's, he's writing to a group of believers. They're in Corinth. They're real believers. He thanks God for them, chapter 1, and yet they, uh, they're struggling. There are things that they, uh, that they don't understand uh, surrounding the Lord's Supper. Uh, they fail to grasp its significance both on a horizontal level and a vertical level. The, the, because the Lord's Supper is about both, isn't it? It's about communion with the Lord and communion with one another as we gather together and celebrate this. Well, they're, they're failing on both aspects. The horizontal failure is addressed specifically in chapter 11. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can, you can uh, t- turn over there and read where Paul uh, rebukes them because th- they uh, have made the Lord's Supper into a love feast, quote unquote, that was profoundly unloving. Paul says in verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. So the rich are stuffing themselves and, and getting drunk with wine, and the poor are nibbling at their dry bread and sipping some water and watching. And this is, this is in the church. And so you see, there, there's a fundamental violation of this horizontal aspect. In fact, Paul will say in verse 22 that their behavior is a despising of the church of God. Now that's, that's strong language. It's a despising of the church of God. Paul wants them to understand that what they do at the table matters. And failure at the table matters. But there's a vertical failure here as well, not just horizontal, and that's what Paul takes up in chapter 10. Uh, They are, these Christians... Feel free to eat both at pagan temples and at uh, the church worship service. Uh, There's a failure, you see, on their part to to grasp the participatory nature of these meals. Now, this was a big issue in the early church because um, one of the questions, if you remember, that was often raised is, can we eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? And, and you, would, you would ask that not as sort of an esoteric um, thing you were, you know, just you're kind of wondering about, but that was almost all the meat that was sold in the marketplace was meat that had been sacrificed at the local pagan temple. People would bring their sacrifices in worship of pagan deities, and, and then uh, some of that meat would be used for that, and the, and the rest would go to the marketplace, and you could buy it. Well, can a good Christian eat meat that's been sacrificed uh, to, pag- to, uh, to pagan gods? And, and Paul says, absolutely. The earth is the Lord's. Uh, food is, is a gift of God. You can enjoy it without questions of conscience. 
So the meat is perfectly fine. The meal is something else altogether. To participate in the meal is to participate in what that meal symbolizes, what it stands for. So in verse 18, he says, those who ate at the sacrifices of the Old Testament, they were participating in the altar, in what that altar stood for. And in the same way, the pagans. When, when they have their meal uh, in worship of their pagan gods, he says, there's, it is shot through with demons. You are communing with demons. You're sitting down to eat and drink with demons. It's the demon's cup. It's the demon's table. Uh, and, and Paul says, you can't both commune with the Lord and with the opponents of the Lord, the devil. Right? The meal matters. The meat is fine. The meal matters. Because as you participate in the meal, you fellowship with the spiritual reality that the meal signifies. Now, we, uh, we tend to think of Lord's Supper as uh, something that we do when we go to church. And we do it every month. Um, but that's about it. It's something that um, maybe is meaningful more or less. But, but what we fail to realize is that it is not just something you do when you go to church. It's an act of the church in which we participate together in the realities signified and sealed in the bread and wine. That there is a true participation taking place. Now, what does that mean? Well, um, again, um, we don't really have a well-rounded uh, grasp of what a covenant meal is. We, we really don't even have, as 21st century Americans, we have an impoverished doctrine of eating in general. Right? If we think about eating, we think about calories or menu items. Uh, when the first century a Christian thought about eating, they thought about community. Eating is what you do with friends. It signifies friendship and belonging. It signifies receiving the good gifts of God. They didn't count calories back then. Can you imagine? Of course, they were walking probably you know, 10 to 20 miles a day, and so they didn't need to. But um, eating was, uh, the way we think about eating is, is, well, there'll be another sermon series maybe, a doctrine of eating. I think it'll be highly popular. But we don't have a sense also of a covenant meal. What in the world is a covenant meal? What does it mean? What does it do? Bobby Jameson uh, wrote an article recently, how the, locals, how the Lord's Supper makes a local church, and he uses the analogy of marriage to help explain the significance of, of the supper. He says this, when does a couple actually get married? Is it when they say, I do? Is it when the minister pronounces them, husband and wife? Or is it when they consummate the marriage? There's a sense in which each of those moments is essential for the formation of a marriage, but each also depends on the other. That's why if a marriage is never consummated, there's a sense in which the couple is not yet fully married. And this distinction carries a legal weight. Severing such a bond is an annulment. It's not a divorce. So there's a legal significance to this. You see, there are certain acts that do not simply point 
to something, but actually form legal covenant bonds. You know this if you buy a house or a car. You have to sign papers that transfer the ownership and the title. You got to sign papers uh, with the bank for the loan if you're taking out a loan. Those are covenant contracts. And uh, the covenant is enacted upon the signature. If you don't sign it, there's, there's, no, there's just a covenant in form, but there's not a covenant that's been made. You haven't entered into it. But once you've signed the paperwork, you've entered into the covenant. You've taken on both the benefits, you get the house, and the terms of the covenant. You make the payments. You take that on. So the, the covenant gets enacted when you sign the paper. Well, the Lord's Supper functions in a similar way. It's not identical, but there's some similarities. It is a meal that we enter into that, that forms covenant bonds and expresses covenant commitments. It's, it's in a sense of um, entering into the reality of the covenant. You're not standing on the outside sort of looking at it. You're entering into it. Uh, someone recently uh, referred to the Lord's Supper as the meal that seals the deal. That's, a, that's exactly correct. The meal that seals the deal. It's a solemn ratifying of the covenant that we have with God in Christ. A covenant created by Christ. We didn't come up with it. God did in Christ. Uh, so it's, it's, it's the, the, the terms are established in, 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 uh, that God will willingly forgive you and make you his, his adopted child. And, and, um, and you now enter into that covenant by faith and faith alone. But it's signified and sealed by the covenant meal. Now, the, uh, the, the early church would have grasped this because most of them, the Jewish ones for sure, had an understanding of, Old Testament, of their Old Testament where covenant meals are common. The most common would be the Passover meal where you actually, you see, you, um, the original Passover for sure, but all, but all of them would signify the same where it's an engagement with the covenant so that the blessings are yours. If you didn't eat the meal uh, at the first Passover, when the angel of death passed over, what would happen to you? You came under the judgment. Putting the, the, the blood on the doorpost and sacrificing the lamb and eating the meal as God had, 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 had said is your way of entering into the peace that is uh, pro, pro, uh, procured by the covenant. Well, we have one example. If you have your Bible, take Genesis 31. I think this, uh, just one more example that maybe helps us get a sense of what is a covenant meal. Genesis 31. <clears throat> I'm not going to read the whole chapter. Just to remind you where we are in Old Testament history, Jacob uh, has uh, been living with his uncle Laban, and uh, he's been there for 20 years. He's gotten quite wealthy, very wealthy in fact, and he's gained two wives and, and some children. Um, and because of his wealth specifically, God blessed him there, and the sons of Laban are not happy about it. So if you look at uh, 31 uh, verse 1, now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. And so uh, the Lord says to Jacob, it's time for you to go back home, back to the land of your father's. And so he does, but he does so in a kind of a sneaky way. He just 
secretly leaves and uh, takes everything that he thought belonged to him and a few things that didn't belong to him. Uh, Rachel, if you remember, Jacob's wife, steals her father's household god. Now, we're not sure what, what exactly that was. It's some object of great value, monetary value at least. And um, so she, she sneaks it and, uh, and they take off. Uh, you think that Laban comes home and says, where's my daughter? Uh, apparently what he says is, where's my god? And he gathers his sons and they take off after Jacob, intending to do harm. He's gathered his sons and his kinsmen as a small army. Well, God meets Laban in the night and says, don't harm him. So when we get to verse 43, uh, Laban is caught up with Jacob. And they've uh, had this deal where, uh, where is my household God? And uh, Rachel was hiding it. Anyhow, they come to a covenant of peace. That's what I want to get to. Verse 43. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these daughters or for their children whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I. And let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Maybe you know Gilead. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid and Mitzpah, for he said... The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. These are the terms of the covenant. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and pillar which I've set between you and me. Uh, this heap is a witness and, a pill and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Naor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of, the, of his father Isaac and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. So what you have here is a covenant clearly being formed, intentionally being formed between these two men, between you and me. And the way that that covenant is enacted is by um, setting up some tangible sign of it, this heap of stones, and then, and then it's ratified in the eating of the meal. And the meal, you see, is, is a, both an expression pointing to the covenant and an, exp and an experience of the peace of the covenant. Uh, in those days, you only eat with friends. You only eat with people that um, you are willing to have intimate, true relationship with. And so for Laban and Jacob to sit down at this meal doesn't just point to something, it's the experience of it. It both confirms the covenant and it experiences and expresses the peace that has been achieved in the covenant. This says, you see, they're eating, says, it shows that the war is done. The war is over. Peace has been gained. Well, similarly then again, you see, the Lord's Supper is, is that sort of a covenant meal. It, it doesn't just point to something that happened a long time ago. It, 
It does that, and it is a present experience of the blessings that we have in the covenant of grace. What do you get in the covenant of grace? You get Jesus in the covenant of grace. You get Christ and all of his benefits for you in the covenant of grace so that you, you are no longer at enmity with God. Peace has been gained, right? In Jesus Christ. And the Lord's Supper then, you see, both points to that and you are, in a sense, entering into the experience of that peace. Who gets to eat with God? His friends do. His children do. Those who've been reconciled to him through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And so you see, Jesus invites you and me to his table. It's his table. Just the way Jacob invited Laban to come and let's eat now. Jesus invites us to his table to fellowship with him as an expression of and experience of the peace that we have with God through him. The war is over. We have become friends with God. It's an incredible thing. So that's a covenant meal. That's a participation. Participation, the Greek word, can also be translated as fellowship. There is real fellowship with, with Christ by his spirit. There's real fellowship in the covenant meal. But it's also a corporate meal. So Jacob and Laban make this covenant, but notice it's not just between Jacob and Laban. They invite all the kinsmen to come and eat with them. You see, it's not just a deal between two men, but between two households. And so all the kinsmen are invited, verse 54, to come and to eat. There's a corporate sense to it, a corporate communal reality to this covenant and to the covenant meal. And therefore, participation, wholesale participation, would be very, very important, very significant. You see, imagine if one of Laban's sons said, I'm not eating. I'm not participating. Is that okay? What would he be saying in doing that? Well, you see, what he would be saying is that I'm not willing to enter into the covenant relationship because I'm not eating that meal. I'll eat other meals or maybe I'll sit over here and we'll, we'll do our own little thing, but I'm not eating that covenant meal. He's not willing to abide by the covenant terms. You see, he's unwilling to be reconciled to Jacob. For him, the war is still on. That's what he would be saying. He, he's not just rejecting a meal. He's rejecting the covenant that the meal stands for. He's rejecting the friendship, the fellowship, the peace, the unity that's been gained by the covenant. And so you see, a covenant meal is a big thing. It's a big deal. To eat is a public participation in the covenant. When you come to the table of Lord, you are publicly saying, I accept the covenant. I agree to the terms. But if, uh, to refuse it, you see, is also a public profession. Uh, to refrain from it is a public profession. We, we often talk about the danger of eating and drinking in an unworthy manner, and, and that is thoroughly appropriate because Paul himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he does that. 
He warns uh, them, um, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. The meal matters. How you come to the meal matters. It's possible to come to the table of the Lord and despise it like they were doing in Corinth. So we need to talk about the danger of eating and drinking. But we don't often talk about the danger of not eating and drinking. In fact, I don't think um, I've thought about this much at all. But you see, what if someone refuses or persistently refrains from the table of the Lord? If Jesus invites you to come and, and eat this covenant meal and you persistently fail to do so, is that okay? Are you, are you making some sort of statement even if it's unintentional? You see, it's, it's possible to make unintentional statements by our behavior. Uh, you have a great example of that in Galatians chapter 2. You can read up on it yourself, but verses 11 and following, where Paul says, I had to publicly rebuke Peter to his face. Peter, the leader of the, of the Jewish portion, at least of the church, but the, the, a renowned leader. And Paul says, I had to rebuke him publicly. Why? Because Peter uh, used to eat with the Gentiles, but then when certain men from James showed up, uh, men who were... Um, in favor with the circumcision party, people who, who taught that you had to be circumcised in order to really be a Christian. Uh, Paul says when these guys showed up, Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles, the uncircumcised people. Why? Well, because he was, we're not told exactly, but he's afraid of what these men from James would say, afraid of strife, whatever. Clearly, Peter was not intending to deny the gospel. That was not, Peter loved the gospel. He was an ambassador of the gospel. He, he did not mean to deny the gospel, and yet Paul says, I rebuked him for denying the gospel. He was living contrary to the gospel because his actions were saying that actually um, there is something other than faith that allows us to eat together. There's faith and then there's circumcision. And the whole letter of Galatians is about, no, it's, it's faith alone that justifies us. You see, so it's, a, it's possible to, to, to make unintentional statements by how we, how we treat the, the table. Now, um, what, I, what I really want you to do is I want to let the weight of the glory of this covenant meal settle on you. The, the Lord's table is not a law. In, right, in the sense that um, God is saying, it's faith and uh, you better be present at my table. It is a gift of God, an invitation for you to come and, and dine with your Savior in a real participation. And in so doing, you, in, you uh, again and again, you see, you engage the covenant, you, you're, you're taking this this, this covenant meal and expressing and experiencing the reality of the peace that you have with God is not the bread we break participation in. That's what we're doing at the table of the Lord. 
You see, it's not just a symbolic relationship. It, it, when we hold up the bread and, and the wine, we're not just saying, now, now try to imagine that, that, uh, that this is the body of Christ, or, or, or try to think about something that happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus says, this is my body. Now, we, we understand this is not, the, he's not talking about his physical flesh, but he's talking about a real sacramental union so that when we, as we in faith, you see, eat the bread and drink the wine in faith, we are participating, we're fellowshipping with Christ. As we take his covenant again to ourselves, it matters to him. Remember, he's the one that said, do this in remembrance of me. The, the, the apostles didn't think it up. It's, it's not a, a memory aid for the church that the apostles decided would be, would be kind, of, kind of neat or helpful. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. It matters to him, and it clearly mattered to the early church. And my appeal is, it needs to matter to us. It needs to really matter. Because I don't think we get it. I don't think we, we grasp the wonder and significance of this covenant meal. And let me just... Just quickly, um, let you in on some of the thoughts in my mind as I'm studying this and I'm preparing this message and, and I'm writing down, I don't think we get uh, the, the real significance of this. And I say, now, now why would people at Harvest Church not really grasp the significance of the meal? Well, one of the reasons is because their pastor hasn't done a really good job of teaching it. And I just, I acknowledge that. This is something that I'm growing in myself and um, I don't think I've grasped. Uh, the way that the New Testament church or the way the Apostle Paul does what this covenant meal really is about. And I think that, that, uh, that my failure here is reflected in the congregation. I don't see, see, I, I, I don't think missing the Lord's table feels like a big deal to us. I, <clears throat> I don't notice any uptick in attendance when we celebrate the Lord's table. We miss it easily. And, and I'm not talking about missing it, you know, when kids are sick or because you're away, of course. And, and we need to acknowledge there are God-honoring reasons at some, sometimes for refraining from the table. We, we say every time we celebrate the Lord's table that if you're living in unrepentant sin, so you've got something going on that you know is, is contrary to the will of God and you're unwilling to repent of that, that we tell you, as Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, don't participate lest you eat and drink judgment to yourself because you're participating in a hypocritical way. You're saying, I engage the covenant and I submit to the terms of the covenant and, I'm, and I embrace Jesus as, as Lord and Savior as you, as, you, as you eat and drink, but then actually in your life you're doing something completely different. You're trying to do the demons and the Lord thing. And Paul says it doesn't work. Don't do it. So there's a God on your reason. I just would like to say to you, if, if that is you, don't just s s stay there and hope things work out. You, you need to come and talk to somebody. If you're, if you're a member of the church of Jesus Christ, uh, living in unrepentant sin, brother, sister, you need help. You're stuck. Galatians 6.1 talks about people like this who are caught in sin. It happens to us. But don't stay there. You see, the, the meal is calling you to Repent. Some of you are absent uh, anytime it's in the evening, and that's 50% of the time. Every other week, we, every, other, every other month, we're at, we, rot we rotate. We do that because some people can't make morning services due to work because they're a nurse or involved in some health care. But when it's at an evening service, again, I don't, see a, I don't see an uprise in attendance. Some of you don't come to the table of the Lord on, on an evening simply because it's in the evening. 
and you've made a, a, a decision that you're not going to attend services in the evening. And, and brother and sister, I love you. I, I, I know I'm stepping on, tones, on, on toes. I don't mean to shame anyone. I just think it's one more sign of the, our failure as a church to really grasp what does it mean to have a meal where we fellowship with Christ. If I, if I told you Jesus Christ personally, physically, is going to be present at Harvest Church tonight, I don't think any of you would miss it. And yet Jesus promises that, that he will be with us by his spirit and word and sacrament so that there is real participation. Paul's not using a figure of speech. And again, this weighs on all of us. This weighs on, on us, uh, some of us uh, young people. I, I just want to address you, dear young people. You know I love you. Do you know that 30, we have 34 young people between the ages of 15 and 20 who have not yet made profession of faith? These are 34 baptized members of the church, most of whom have been born and raised, brought up here at Harvest Church, most of you here this morning, who have not yet made profession of faith. And I just, guys, I want, you, I want to ask you to think about that. Have you ever thought about what you're saying by not coming to the table? But just think seriously about what is it that's keeping you, you see, from coming to the table. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, don't you think you should? Now, some of you will say, well, you know, I just don't believe that stuff. And I understand. I hear you, okay? Some of you don't believe the gospel. And if that's you this morning, let me just say, then again, talk to somebody. Talk to me, talk to your parents, talk to a, a youth group leader. You've got people all over here who will happily talk to you. It's okay to have questions. Everybody has to own their faith. It's okay to say, I don't quite get this, or that doesn't make sense to me, or I'm not sure I believe that. That's okay. I'm just, I'm just saying, young person, please deal with that issue. Then come and talk to people and, and, and let us show you real answers. Now, maybe they'll be satisfying to you and maybe they won't be. But my experience has been when I've talked with young people who've had very good and sincere questions and I've shown them the, the best answers that we have, they find it satisfying and profoundly helpful and encouraging. My, my, I guess my appeal is just don't sit there week after week and, and uh, as though these things have no importance. You see, the meal matters. Now, some of you, I think most of you, actually do believe the gospel. I think you believe it wholeheartedly. I think your desire is to submit to Christ and to live for Him. And my charge, young person, would be then profess it. Profess it. I mean, to say that you believe and yet resist the command of Christ to do, you see, is its own hypocrisy. If you believe it, if, you, if you're willing to live in the wonderful covenant of grace and peace that God has made for you in Jesus Christ, then, then profess that faith. Profess it. You see, at some point, your baptism and all the covenant privileges that come along with the baptism, including being in church Sunday after Sunday and being raised in a gospel home, at some point, to continually say no to the covenant meal, you see, is, becomes, well, you're, you're saying no to the covenant at some point. And, and, and your baptismal privileges speak against you at some point. 
So young person, whatever it is that's holding you back, maybe it's fear, maybe you don't want to go and talk to the elders again, I understand, but we've, we've done everything we can to make it as easy as possible. We give you the questions. We do. And so I just want you to feel the weight, young person, of the table, the covenant meal that you are not participating in because you've not yet made profession of faith. And this is for all of us, friends. You see, in light of what is represented in the table, in light of what is signified, our eager lean ought to be to the table. It's a covenant meal that is an expression and an experience of the most amazing thing in the world that you and I, sinners, every one of us, who rightly deserve to be condemned forever, and God would be just to do so, but instead he's given us his son and invited us into his fellowship. A fellowship purchased by the body and the blood of Christ. God is saying to you, come to the table. The war is over in Jesus Christ. Come and eat. Come and drink. Your presence matters. And that's why you see in the, Old, in, in the New Testament, you see that, that God's people break bread together. They do it routinely. They, 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 it's something they get to do and they do it on purpose. They do it on purpose. They do it because Jesus Christ commanded them to do it. Do this in remembrance of me. They, they, they do it because the table is where they express their, um, and experience all that God has done for them in Jesus Christ. This is where they, the, the church comes together and says, we belong to Jesus. And we gladly embrace the covenant of grace and peace we have with God in Jesus Christ. And we gladly submit to the terms. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We gladly submit to that. And we gladly submit to the claim of our Lord upon our life in every area, our money, our sexuality, our mental, our work, our, our family, our entertainment, all of it belongs to him. That's, that's what we confess as we come to the covenant meal. We are coming to a covenant meal with Jesus. And we do that together as the church. We say, not only do we belong to Jesus, but in Jesus we belong to one another. He's made us a body. Paul says in verse 17 of chapter 10, because there was one bread, we who are many are one body, for we partake of the one bread. Do you see the logic? The one bread makes the many one. We've got 600 many's out here. But you see what the bread does, what the one bread does, as we, as we partake in the one bread, we, we are formed as one body. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body, one table. We're a church. Bob Jamison again says, The Lord's Supper gathers the we who are many and makes them into one body. It marks off an entire group of Christians as one body, drawing a line between them and the world around them, makes it possible to point to something and say, Church rather than just pointing to many somethings and saying Christians. You see, we're not just Christians doing the same sort of thing alongside of each other. We're a church. We've been bound as a church. When Jesus addresses the saints in Asia Minor in the first chapters of the book of Revelation, he always says to the church of Ephesus and to the church of Sarnia and to the church of Laodicea. Brothers, sisters, we are the church of Harvest OPC. 
God has called us together. He's made us a body, one body. And when you're baptized, boys and girls, you're baptized into the, the body here at Harvest Church. And when you profess your faith, you become a communicant member of this body. And we celebrate, you see, the unity that we have in Christ and the solidarity that we have in Christ at a covenant meal. One beautiful covenant meal, one, one bread, one, one wine, and we, we share that together because we're the church, his church. And so let me close this morning by inviting you to the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight, in the worship service, that is not meant to be a guilt trip. That's, that's an invitation. It's an invitation, you see, to join with the fellow members of this church, your brothers and sisters here at Harvest. It's an invitation to fellowship together with our Lord Jesus Christ, a real participation, a real fellowship. It's, it's, an, it's an invitation to experience and express the fellowship that we have by the grace of God in Christ. A grace and peace and fellowship sealed with his body and his blood. We have become the friends of God. The war is over. We have become the body of Christ. We're not just a bunch of many somethings. We are one something, the church. One of the songs that I remember clearly as a child growing, uh, growing up singing after the end of the, the service, usually in the evening, was May the Grace. Many of you know it. May the grace of Christ our Savior and the Father's boundless love with the Holy Spirit's favor rest upon us from above. And then verse 2 says this. Thus may we abide in union with each other and the Lord and possess in sweet communion joys which earth cannot afford. May God give us that. Let's pray. Oh, God in heaven, I thank you so much for your truth and your church. I thank you for your table. I thank you for this wonderful covenant meal where we get to express and experience the realities of a covenant that has been made. And Father, there are many people, Lord, some who are here and in truth, have, have never really had an interest in the table. And I just pray, Lord, that the message today, your word would have opened their mind and lit a fire. Lord, there are some here who are not members of a church. And um, I, Lord, I pray that this would also give them a hunger to come and, and taste that bread and wine in faith and to be part of the church of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, you'd move them to forward in their uh, in their growth and faith and their understanding of these things, that they would, Lord, be soon joined publicly to the church. Lord, I pray for our young people. I thank you so much for them. Lord, some of them are just wrestling with, with guilt, sensing they're not good enough. Some are wrestling with fear, what others might think or say. Some are wrestling with apathy. It's just not really a big deal to them. Lord, I pray that you would you would bless our children with a living, vibrant faith and a, and, and a desire to profess that faith and join the covenant meal. Oh, God, I pray that we as a church 
would grow in this. Help me to, to lead better and teach, Lord, your truth so that we together are growing in a better grasp of the, the beauty of what it means to be the church and, and what it means to be able to fellowship with our Savior at his table. And so, Lord, we, we just turn to you. We ask for your grace and peace to be on us that we would grow in these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.